0: Well, good morning, Mercy Hill. Uh, Nick here, lead pastor. Um, thank you, Peter, for those announcements. A couple things I'd just reiterate for you guys. Um, one, uh, some of you who do receive our newsletter or check in online, you saw that we did actually create kind of a document that'll be more or less a working document. Um, I think it's entitled Mercy Hill's Reopening Plans and Guidelines. Um, and in there, you'll see certain things about what we're planning to do. We're going to focus in on our small groups and events like that, since that seems to be the most feasible, um, and what we're kind of yeah, able to navigate with 25 people or under outside. Um, and we have in there a list of kind of our commitments to you as far as CDC guidelines and other things, and then a few things we'd ask from you as well if you're going to be partaking in or participating in uh, some of those uh, groups or events, uh, just so we can try our best as a church to, um, you know, do our part to care for the vulnerable, keep from spreading the virus, and things like that. Uh, beyond that, um, well, I should say, so you can find that for sure online on our COVID-19 updates page, uh, or we will link to it, like Peter said, in the, in the uh, worship guide there. Also, I would say for the youth, um, the, uh, the hangout that we have uh, at 1 o'clock today, I'm actually going to be in there, and it was really just kind of on my heart to um, talk with Uh, you guys, about the sort of stuff that we're seeing going on around us. In fact, my sermon this morning is going to be on that as well. So issues of race, racism, um, what the Bible has to say about these things. I realize that, you know, in junior high, high school, um, uh, it's probably stressful, probably difficult, and uh, a lot of things to kind of think through. And I'd love to be able to think, talk, pray through that stuff with you. So hope to see you there. Um, With that, I'm going to open up by just reading um, from Revelation 5. Uh, verses 1 through 10 this morning. Revelation is the last book in your Bible, uh, so you should be able to find it kind of easily. Revelation 5, verses 1 through 10. Let me read it, uh, pray, and then I'll, I'll kind of dive in and start to explain what we're doing this morning. This is a vision, essentially, from John. Uh, he's given this vision uh, of what's going down in heaven, and here's what we read. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth." Would you pray with me? Well, Lord, here at the outset, it's my prayer in particular, just that you would uh, you would grant um, mercy to me as your mouthpiece. I don't want to get in the way of anything that you would want to speak to your people. And I want to only bring out those things that would be from your heart to them. And so that I'm praying, uh, perhaps selfishly, for your help, first and foremost. And then I'm asking God that you would uh, grant ears to hear for all of us. Anyone tuning in uh, to this video, God, that you would grant even now by your spirit ears to hear. What you would say that they would know, man, God is speaking to me through the scriptures this morning. And he's bringing a word of of peace, a word of grace, a a word that uh, helps me find my footing in chaotic times. God, I pray you'd put foundation underneath the feet of your people this morning. I pray you'd put your love in their heart. I'm asking you to do these things and more than I can even think or imagine in these moments for your glory and for our good. Amen. Um, Well, let me begin by uh, saying at least this. Uh, I myself personally have, and I imagine it's the case for many of you as well. I myself personally have have never lived through or in such a time of unrest, physical, physical economic uh, racial relational, social unrest uh, as far as my experience goes there's been nothing uh, like this, nothing to this level before and the fa- in fact, it, what we 've seen is that in the midst of one uh, national even global crisis, uh, yet another one just kind of uh, rolls on in it 's just. Crisis on top of crisis, and it's um, a time of, of serious unrest, I think, for a lot of us. We're feeling it. I've mentioned this before, but you know, on the one hand, uh, we have this virus coming uh, in at us from outside, right? Uh, this more physical enemy, if you will, uh, threatening our bodies and our health, uh, COVID-19. But then on the other hand, what we've seen is this other virus that's now kind of coming out from within. It's, uh, it's this hatred and enmity and really even what we might call racism that kind of rots in the heart of man. And we've got both of these things kind of coming on top of one another in these moments, in these days. And now, I'm not the type that usually, and you f- if you followed along, you along know, with our sermons and things, you know I'm, I'm not the type that usually kind of you know, hits pause on whatever sermon series I'm in to go address this or that you know, current event or cultural issue. I, I tend to feel like, you know what, if we stay true to expositing God's word and give ourselves to hearing him in the scriptures, it'll start to make sense of the stuff that's kind of going on around us Uh, you know, currently and in the culture and things. So I'm usually not hitting pause on this series to get into this and hitting pause on that to get into that and following all the rabbit trails of of cultural uh, happenings and things. But I will say, uh, that being said, every now and then there are times where the cultural moment is just simply screaming to be addressed and any pastor who cares about his people is going to feel the need to kind of get in the fray and, and, and help uh, his people make sense of what is going on, what they're seeing. I, I, so really, my goal is, is to kind of uh, help us as a church make sense of, bring God into, his word into, the gospel into, the stuff that we see going around us uh, uh, today. Now... It just so happens that um, such a a screaming moment, uh, like the one I'm mentioning, like I've said, has happened twice in a row now, one on top of the other. Uh, So what we've noticed is, you know, back uh, maybe a few months ago, I was going through the gospel of Luke and things were progressing quite nicely, albeit slowly, right? Uh, But we were moving and I have every intention of getting back into that. But then all of a sudden, uh, this pandemic strikes, and I thought, you know, I just can't keep going on with business as usual here. We got to hit pause on this Gospel of Luke series. And, and this is when we kind of opened up the Do Not Be Afraid series. We want to address some of the stuff that I think this pandemic, this current crisis is going to bring out with anxiety and fear and some of the questions that we may have about God and his plan and his goodness in the midst of suffering. I hope you've found some of that to be helpful. But then here we come again to now yet another uh, uh, crisis screaming for attention, uh, calling out to be addressed from the pulpit, and uh, I am yet once more hitting pause on another sermon series and saying, no, we've got to address this. So I'm going to hit pause on the Do Not Be Afraid series, and I want to spend some time uh, now talking about the things that we're seeing uh, with racism and, and some of the unrest in the streets uh, going on these uh, days. Now, to be clear, I'm not going to start another uh, sermon series here, uh, but I do anticipate one sermon this morning on the matter, and then wrapping back around after Father's Day to kind of preach a final one on it. Um, But my sense is uh, that these have been, I think, for all of us, uh, distressing and even dizzying days. And I'll explain what I mean by distressing. Here's what I mean. Um, Watching Derek Chauvin kind of casually with his hands in his pockets, drop a knee on the throat of George Floyd and just kind of let the life uh, just drain out of him as if it was nothing. Uh, I think for me and for so many, it just kind of ripped the hearts out of our chest as we kind of saw that stuff going on. There's this sort of distress, and that's what's found its way out into the streets, right? And maybe some of us have even participated in some of the protests or things going on. And, and, and we've seen it, at least if not in person, on the news where people are hitting the streets and they're saying something has to be done. This is not okay, We've seen it in city after city, and in fact, we've actually seen it happening in country after country. The last I looked, over 60 countries have participated in some sort of protest uh, regarding what's happened here uh, on American soil. It's profound, it's distressing. When I say dizzying, uh, what I mean is this. if, if you've, you've probably experienced this, but this has kind of been my experience to this point. I, I turn on this news station and I start feeling this way. (laughs) But then I turn on that news station, and I start feeling that way about the stuff going on. So I say, forget the news for a little bit, but of course then naturally we kind of go to our social media and we start scrolling, and then it actually gets worse, because then we now see kind of what our friends think about the issue, now it's personal, because we see our friends' opinions on the matter, and this friend is angry at that person over there, and that friend is angry at that person over there, And we kind of get in the midst of all this noise, we get disoriented, we get imbalanced, we get dizzy. We, We don't know how to feel, what to think, how to respond, which way is up or down. And I think the worst part, probably about it all, is that we lose God in the midst of it. In the midst of the chaos and in the midst of the noise, we lose track of, gosh, where is God right now? What is he feeling? What is he doing? What's his heart for the stuff that's going down around us? It's been a prayer of mine that we would be spending more time in God's word and in prayer with him than we would, uh, you know, watching the news or um, scrolling our social media feeds or whatever it may be. Uh, And the reason I've been praying this for myself and for you, albeit I've probably failed personally, uh, is is not because I'm hoping that we'll kind of bury our head in the sand. Uh, and we're not interested in cultural issues and crises and things. We don't want to know about it because it's messing up our joy. Uh, we'd rather be naive. That's not the point at all. I'm not saying, "I God, please let my people bury their head in the sand. No, what I'm praying is that we would uh, actually instead put our feet upon solid ground in those moments. So that we can then not pull away from the culture, but enter back into the cultural moment with something to say, with something to do, with a sense of clarity and a sense of direction so that we can be agents of peace, agents of grace in a time of unrest, and we can have words that are seasoned with salt, words that build up and bring life, not tear down and just add to the death and destruction going on. So, this is essentially what I feel to be my job as a pastor, as a preacher of God's word. I feel it to be my job and my calling to help us regain our balance in dizzying, distressing days to help us find our footing, to know, you know what God's heart is in this so we can kind of get with him on his mission in it all. And if I could just say this up front, I feel totally inadequate. For this call. I feel totally insufficient to do anything like what I just mentioned that I feel called to do nonetheless. In fact, I would go so far as to say, I have probably felt um, more inadequate as a pastor in recent weeks than I have in my entire, I don't know, maybe it's been 10 plus years of, of pastoral ministry. And I think uh, what I've noticed is I I've not, and this is to my shame, I've not given myself in the past to deep uh, intellectual, emotional, practical engagement with issues of race and racism. And, and, and probably my guess is the, the reason for that is because I just haven't been personally all that affected by it which again it's just embarrassing that I would say oh well because it hasn't affected me personally I haven't engaged it as thoroughly as I as I should have but I think that's honestly the truth because if it were something pressing in on me that I felt personally and existentially then you know what I would be thinking and praying through it and addressing it and so I just wanted to begin by saying I'm sorry and the reality is there's a lot of things that I have to, to, to do some listening and some learning with regard to this issue. There's a lot of stuff I have to grow, and there's a lot that I don't know. I don't know what it's like to be a person of color in America today. I don't. I don't know what it's like living in a country where, at least historically, your ancestors are treated like like a person's property or perhaps sometimes even worse than property. Guys nowadays treat their cars a hundred times better than they used to treat some of our our, our American citizens' ancestors. I, I don't understand what that is like. I don't know what that must feel like knowing this is the soil, this is the ground where that stuff happened to my family. And I, I also don't know to what degree this racism still subsists systemically even today. Because I don't think I feel it all the time or, or experience that in the same way. But I'll tell you what I feel like I do know. I, I think I do know a little bit about the Bible. It's just wrestling with how do I address this? I thought, you know, I think I do know a little bit about the Bible and about what God and it says in his word about these issues, how the gospel relates. And so I think that's what I have to offer. I'm certainly going to keep trying to listen and and, and learn. But I, I think this morning, at least my goal is to start to get us into God's word and say, okay, what does God have to say? Where's his heart in all of this? And I hope you find it helpful. Um, the title of the sermon for this morning is Every Tribe, Tongue, People, and Nation. Uh, The Issue of Race and the Gospel of Grace. And this is part one of, like I said, two, what I anticipate to be two sermons. And I've got really two items on the agenda for us, Um, although the second is really just going to wrap into... uh, Uh, part two, the sermon we do the next time. Uh, But those two items are these. First, learning the story. And then second, uh, living in step. Learning the story and living in step. In the first case, I simply want to get us into the storyline of Scripture. And I want to see what's God's heart for race and all peoples. and, 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 And how is racism contrary to God's plan and his purposes for humanity? Um, so we're going to kind of, this morning, kind of give most all of our time to that uh, and kind of lay a theological foundation, as it were, uh, on for this issue. And then the second thing that we'll just touch on this morning, really that idea of living in step is just kind of looking at the implications that spin out from this worldview, that spin out from God's heart for uh, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And we'll kind of look a little bit more practically at maybe how that uh, worldview kind of speaks into and influences uh, the current present moment and how we should uh, and can be responding Okay, so with that, let me uh, get us into that first item, learning the story. Um, I have found it helpful when trying to conceive of the whole storyline of the Bible uh, to really break it down into what I'd call four chapters. Um, And you'd kind of sum them up. If you had to give a chapter title, it would be like this, Creation, Fall, Redemption, Consummation. Kind of encapsulates the entire meta narrative of scripture in four chapters. And what I want to do is kind of run this idea of race and racism through those four chapters and kind of get a sense of what God feels. And we'll kind of see what we can learn uh, from that together. So first then, uh, creation, chapter one, creation. Before we can uh, really talk about creation, we actually need to kind of take a little bit step uh, even before, be before that um, and talk about God himself, because that's really where creation begins. He uh, you know, always was, always will be, and it's really where the scripture actually begins. If you open to Genesis 1.1, you read this, in the beginning, God. He's kind of the starting point, the alpha point uh, of all creation. And, and this is important because what we understand, uh, even at the beginning, is that God is himself a, a sort of um, unity, even in diversity. Uh, and what I'm referencing to there, and I obviously don't have much time to go into this, but it's the orthodox Christian teaching on the Trinity that God is three persons, and yet one in essence. There's one God, three persons, uh, composing that God. And I know that's confusing, and as you kind of make your way through the New Testament, you kind of see you know, more of that unfold, but it's actually hinted at even right here in the very beginning, in the, in the kind of opening uh, up of this whole idea of creation in Genesis 1. Because we actually see there, uh, there's this person called God, right? But then if you read on in the narrative, you you see, oh my goodness, there's not just this person called God, but then we're told that over the face of the deep and hovering over the waters, there's this other uh, person, as it were, called the Spirit of God. So there's the Father, we might say, and the Spirit. And then we understand that God creates all of this with uh, his word, right? And John, in his gospel, John 1, 1 through 3, he's going to capitalize on this and say, listen, Jesus is the word. He is the logos, the son of God. Uh, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And through him, all things were made. And so, already in the very beginning, we have these hints towards the fact that God is, in fact, a, a unity in the midst of di- diversity. Now, you're going to need to hold on to that because it really kind of sets the stage for all that follows. Now, we come to this idea of, of, of creation proper. And we see that God uh, first kind of uh, establishes and, and, and shapes these various realms, whether you're talking about sky or sea or land. And then he fills those realms with uh, things like, you know, uh, stars and, and, and fish. And, and animals, and vegetation, and things like that. And then really what we gather from the creation narrative is that the capstone of, uh, of it all, really the climax of his creation, is you and I. It's, it's mankind. It's human beings. Here he says something of, of us that he says, of nothing else, in all creation. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can open it to Genesis 1, uh, 26 through 28, and I'll read this to you. The thing to note here, at least uh, especially at first, is this idea that we've been created in the image of God. It's something that sets us apart from uh, all the rest of creation as human beings is the fact that we've been created in God's image. And what that means is at least two things. It, it speaks something about our identity and it speaks something about our purpose. With regard to our identity at human, of, as human beings, it, it speaks about the sort of relationship that we have almost as, as, as son to uh, father, Uh, children of the living God. It speaks about this special relationship. It speaks about uh, the the value that God places on us, the dignity that he's created, inherent to all human beings. Um, And it also speaks something with regard to our our purpose. So the idea of image, it's this idea of reflecting, or or it may help you to think of the idea of almost like God kind of making us kind of little mirrors (laughs) of himself. Um, And the idea would be that we are called and have been created to reflect who God is into all the world round about us. And so people should look at us and then actually see something more of him in the way that we relate to one another, in the way that we do culture and art, and the way that we, we cultivate the ground, and the way that we kind of co-rule with God in his creation. We're supposed to be reflecting his glory and his character. So we see these things about our, our value and identity and our, and our, and our purpose and mission really is um, a staggering thought to consider this, that we've been made in God's image. And this is why uh, David, when he's kind of reflecting on the creation story and reflecting on the, the uh, way that God has esteemed us and lifted us up in such a way, uh, he, he just kind of uh, extols God and erupts in song in, in, in this way. This is Psalm 8, verses 3 through 6. When I look at your heavens So David looks at creation, he looks at the stars, he looks at all that God has made and he goes, how in the world could you have, have who, who created all of this then set man actually on top of it to care for it, to rule over it, to subdue it in your name and have dominion in other things. It's an incredible thought and it leads David to worship and it should lead us to that as well. What an honor that God would give us something of himself in such a profound way. But now for the sake of our purposes this morning, there are really two more things that we need to see and and draw out from this um, creation uh, chapter, if you will, this creation part of the narrative. Uh, The first thing that we need to see is that the image of God, I wonder if you notice, it's not merely given to Adam but it's given to Adam and Eve. In fact, there's this sort of uh, um, insinuation from the language there. We'd gather that just as kind of God is, this is why I spent a few moments on that, is himself a unity in diversity, three in one, so too to project that image of himself or to put that image upon humanity, he can't just give it in full to just one person. But instead, male and female together kind of help present this, again, uh, glory of God, this image of God, and the fact that we too are called to be this unity in diversity. And so I wonder if you noticed it there, where in Genesis 127, we read this, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So there's this idea that there's this singular image and this unity and yet male and female both together in some way displayed in a way that perhaps one alone could not. We could take it actually a little bit further and we need to for the sake of the subject matter at hand. Uh, And we realize that it's not just male, female, and this sort of gender thing that God kind of uses to display his image. But we also come to gather as the scriptures unfold. And we watch as various races and various nations and ethnicities and cultures start to develop. What we see is that even in the midst of all of that diversity, there is yet still one Image and, and, and in fact, the, the, the multifaceted uh, array of human beings and color and culture and all this can actually also start to add to yet again the glory of God and add to in presentation of this, this image where God who is unity in diversity is put on display in the way that all of these various races, cultures, nations, peoples have been made By virtue of creation, they're considered in his image. There's this fundamental unity. Genesis one says that man, woman, whoever you are, human being made in the image of God. What this means is that every single one of us has been ascribed by him with dignity and value called to share in his purposes for the world. One is not better than the other. There is, at bottom, this sort of unity, equality. It's the basis, really, for civil rights and all of these other things, and we may talk about that next time. But what's kind of interesting to note is that really however we want to talk about race or ethnicities and things, if we're following the scriptures, what we come to realize is that uh, at the bottom of it all, there really is just one race, the human race, which is why in Acts seventeen twenty six Paul can say this God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So there's this deep, fundamental unity, this thing that unites all peoples, regardless of culture, upbringing, color, whatever it may be, and that is that we have been created, like Adam, like Eve, in the image of God. So when you walk by another human being, regardless of how different they are from you, I want this to settle in. You are walking by an image bearer of Almighty God. Now, we move to chapter 2 and this idea of the fall because what we sadly come to see is though there's this diversity and there should be this sort of unity and oneness that humanity experiences. Uh, Instead, uh, just turn a couple chapters in the book of Genesis to chapter three and you realize, oh my goodness, it all just fractures and falls apart uh, straight away. And it's as if in our sin, we kind of shatter the mirror of this image. We no longer kind of reflect God the way we ought. Now we may be diverse and we may still all have been created in the image of God, but whatever else we are, we are certainly not united. There's all this enmity and division. And we kind of watch it unfold uh, there in those opening chapters of Genesis. So Genesis 3, what we see is that, man, part of the effect of Adam and Eve's rebellion uh, against God is actually that they turn on one another as well. So Adam, uh, you know, when they've been found out, turns on his bride, who he had just previously sung over, right? He turns on his bride, the woman you gave me made me do it. She's the reason I sinned. God, get her. So male and female kind of ripping apart this unity being distorted and divided. And then in Genesis 4, what we see is, is this idea of sibling rivalry already taking place with Cain and Abel and one killing the other out of jealousy and things. So marriage is falling apart. Family is falling apart. And as we keep going to, and we kind of follow the story out to Genesis 11, we actually see the beginnings of the breakdown between peoples and other nations and races. And we'll need to kind of center in on this just for a moment because I want you to see it. Um, Genesis 11 really is the, the, the story of the Tower of Babel. Perhaps you're familiar with it. It's particularly important for uh, the subject we're looking at uh, this morning because uh, really it would seem up to this point in human history, there were just kind of one culture, as it were, one language and one uh, race, it might even be said, because we, we were told in verse one of uh, Genesis 11 that the whole earth had one language and the same words. And the people were all together in one place. And strangely enough, on the surface, it would seem these people are uh, in some ways united. This is after the fall, so we know something's a little fishy about this union because there's sin in the heart of man. And we're kind of going, what is going on? Why are all these people gathered together and working? What are they working towards? And if you know the story, here's what we see. They were united, all right, but united together, not with or for God, but against him. But against him. And so at Babel, we have this sort of coalition of rebel humanity gathered together in opposition of God, seeking to build this tower up to heaven. As it were, it would seem almost as if to overthrow in in an effort to kind of overthrow God, get him out of the picture. They're building this stuff up. We're told not to make a name for him or to showcase his glory in all of the world, but instead to make a name for themselves. As far as sinful humans, human beings go, uh, this is the sad reality. There is not much that we agree upon now because of sin. But if there is one thing we can unite behind, it is this, that we don't want God in our lives anymore. We want to be God. If there's one thing that can momentarily unite us, it is this. I don't want God, I want to be God. And so that's what we see happening here. And it's this, actually, ironically, it's kind of this fundamental unity in fallen humanity that ends up leading to all the divisions that we see, right? And it makes sense because really what we uh, understand is when we're saying this, we're saying, I want to be God, you want to be God, and that can only last for so long. Because there can only be one who gets his or her way all the time. And it's going to be me, so watch out. It's going to be me. So we stab and we shoot and we push and we pull and we tear down and we oppress and we do what we have to do to get on top. You see, this, this, this thing that momentarily unites us in opposition to God is the very thing that kind of becomes the, the seed by which we're all divided in the end. And that's how the narrative plays out in Genesis 11. When God catches wind of what humanity is up to, using their one language and their one culture in this one place to try to get rid of the one true God, he comes down. And it's almost like he just drops a boot on this kind of army of ants. If you've ever done that, you, know, you drop the boot and the ants just scatter. And that's what we see Happen, disunity, division, we're told that God confuses their language and they're dispersed from there over the face of the earth, verse 9. And it's really here, according to the way that Scripture describes it at least, that it would seem uh, we finally start to get this subset of various races and cultures because now they're, they have different languages. Now they're going and they're, uh, they're situating themselves in different places all over the world. They're starting to develop different culture, different arts, different political things, different even religions and this sort of stuff. They're starting to take on different physical characteristics. And so it's here in Genesis 11 that we start to see, okay, different races coming into view, different ethnicities coming into view. So here's the the tragic irony really in all of this. In our uh, conjoined attempt to be like God apart from God, We actually end up becoming less and less like him and less and less like each other. There's even more now animosity, arrogance, conflict, spite, enmity, firing off in every direction, vertically, horizontally. Now this, brothers and sisters, is what we see playing out in the streets. In the news, and if we're honest sometimes, even in our own hearts. Chapter one, creation. Chapter two, fall. Chapter three, redemption. Genesis 11 is quickly followed, thankfully, by Genesis 12. So what we realize is that while God is holy and while God is just, and he absolutely will punish the wicked, he takes, in one sense, no delight in that punishment. He instead delights in restoring, in showing mercy, in, in bringing back to wholeness that which has been broken. And so we see that he sets uh, after this sort of thing straight away Right after kind of scattering the peoples in Genesis 11, he already kind of begins his rescue effort, as it were, in Genesis 12. And he starts with this guy by the name of Abraham. God promises to make of him a great nation. And in this way, Abraham becomes kind of the headwaters of the chosen people of Israel. But now we've got to stop and ask. So what's God going to do with Abraham? What does God say his plan is for Abraham. Is this just kind of another example of favoritism or even another example of racism? God says, I like this guy more than all the others. Let me hang out with the people of Israel. I'm going to make a nice nation. You'll be my people. Let's forget everyone else. No, that's not what happens. Here's what we read, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. This is is what God says to uh, Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country. And your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I wonder if you heard it. He says, absolutely, Abraham, from you, I'm going to make a great nation. And I'm going to pour out my blessing upon that nation. But here's the point. I'm going to bless your nation with a view to blessing all nations. In other words, Abraham, you saw what just went down with with Babel and all these things, or he probably didn't because he came later, but we just did in the story as we're reading it. And the Jews are reading this story, flipping the page. We saw what just went down with with Babel in Genesis 11 and the nations and the people scattered all around the the world. Well, Abraham, right now, right now, we're already starting to go after them. I'm going to start with you, but we're going after them. It's powerful, it's profound. And what's sad is that Israel's going to lose sight of this. But even as Israel lose sight of, uh, loses sight of these things and kind of gives way to the, just the natural impulses in man towards ethnocentricity, uh, prejudice, and uh, racism and things, we see that God is still boldly proclaiming his plan to bring blessing to all the nations. So we read these amazing texts. I wonder if you've ever uh, sat down and read through the prophets, you'll see some of these things. You'll probably get confused about a lot, and then you'll come to Some of these verses, and you should sit and just go, No no way. I can't believe it. How did I miss this? Look at Isaiah 19, 24 through 25. Um, God says this through Isaiah, even about those who had been historically Israel's enemies. Listen in. In that day, talking about kind of the, the end of the age, the last days, in that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed saying, blessed be Egypt, my people and Assyria, the work of my hands and Israel, my inheritance. I wonder if you heard what he just said. He essentially said, listen, uh, Egypt. Oh, I know you enslaved Israel, right? You know, the story of Exodus. Assyria, oh, I know you're the reason why my people were sent into exile, right? Assyrians came in and, and took people there in, in Samaria and whatnot. <laughs> he goes, listen, I know historically your nations have been at odds, but here's what's going to happen. In the end of days, at the, at the last, in the last days, I'm going to bring you together. I'm going to make Egypt my people. I'm going to pour out my blessing upon Assyria in the same sorts of ways that I've done this thing with Israel. There's going to be no fundamental difference because all have been created in the image of God. And I love all of them. And even when I started to work with Israel, I was going after all the nations. And He's going to bring that to fruition, to fulfillment. But here's the question. If Israel continues to kind of, if you know the story, continues to fall into ethnocentrism and, and, and prejudice and things and miss the mark and miss their trajectory that God had set them on with these promises in Abraham. How is God going to fulfill this? If you're a Christian, you know the answer. It's the answer to every Sunday school question. You see, in the line of Abraham would come another One called the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, namely Jesus, perfect man, an unbroken mirror and image of his father's glory. Jesus will be the one to fulfill the promise made to Abraham. He's going to be the one to to make good on the prophecies uh, prophesied by Isaiah. He's going to bring blessing to Israel and blessing to the world and he's going to do it by giving himself up to death, even death on a cross. Not for his own sin, but for ours. Now, here's... What I want you to see, I mean, obviously, there's so much we could talk about with regard to Jesus, his ministry in life and and what he did for us on the cross. But what I want you to see in particular is the way that he goes about reversing the curse that took place there at Babel. It's so profound. It's so amazing. Because you see, just like at Babel, so also at Calvary, around the cross, okay, all humanity gathered against God, gathered against God's anointed, raging against God's anointed. There's this strange, again, and sinister unity that the fallen humanity is uh, engaging in this moment as they yet once more find unity of purpose in opposing God and His purposes. Your enemy is my enemy. It's about the only thing fallen men could agree upon. They're all there, Jew and Gentile, all have their representatives around the suffering servant, the suffering son of man, the sacrifice on the cross, Jesus, as he he hangs there. This is why uh, the disciples say in Acts 4.27, listen, and truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and And Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, they're all there. They're all around the cross, laughing, scoffing, mocking, whipping, lashing, piercing. It's all falling on him. Fallen humanity can't agree on much, but they can agree on this. Get God out of here. Crucify him. The amazing thing about our God and this gospel of grace is that he takes this most vile expression of human pride and rebellion and enmity and he actually uses it to restore us and reunite us with himself and with one another. So check this out. day of Pentecost, right? 50 days after his resurrection comes. Day of Pentecost. Jesus has raised from the dead at this point, ascended to the Father. He's going to pour out his Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church, what happens? Well, all of a sudden, all of his disciples and all of these Christians start speaking in various tongues. And we're told that they're speaking in, 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 in languages from every nation under heaven, Acts 2 5. And it just so happened because Pentecost was a feast there in Jerusalem that there were pilgrims from all over the world that had come for this event, to celebrate this event. And when they start hearing all these people speaking in various languages, they here's the crazy thing, they actually understand it. And they say, wait a minute, how are all of these Christians speaking in the language of my native tongue? I, 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 through the diaspora and things, I grew up uh, over there in that nation. I grew up in that nation. And here we are hearing these Christians extolling, praising God in our native tongues. No doubt they were extolling God for his mercy shown to humanity at the cross in Christ. And they understood it. They got it. I wonder if you're seeing what I'm after here. God is overturning through the gospel and through the work of Jesus on the cross. He is overturning the curse of Babel and the sort of division that started in our hearts and moved out into our culture and our languages and our colors and all this stuff. He is now bringing people in Jesus back together so that we can be a a, a diversified uh, yet unified people. People. He's going to bring us to God. Absolutely. But he's also in that going to reconcile us with each other. It's amazing. He's going to renew us in the image we've marred. He's going to restore all that we've broken. Now we fast forward to chapter four and the idea of consummation, the end of all things. And this leads us really finally to the text I opened with. Perhaps some of you wondered if I was ever going to get there. It's this very dramatic scene in heaven. There's this scroll and it's sealed with uh, seven seals and God's holding it. And and people are saying, man, there's no one that can be found to open uh, these, you know, break these seals and open this scroll. And the idea of the scroll, I think, is that it kind of houses the plan and purposes of God for all history. And so John starts weeping and, and, and wailing in the scene there. He's saying, listen, no one's going to be able to kind of bring the plan and purposes of God to its climax, to the grand finale. We can't find anyone worthy to break the seals and unroll this and get this going and bring it to its climactic end. But then... All of a sudden, there appears, we're told in Revelation 5, 6, a lamb standing as though it had been slain. It's a very curious description, very vivid imagery, I think, used to show that Jesus, uh, through his death slain, is actually victorious. It's, It's through, ironically, through his death that he conquers and that he makes a way to be our king and to bring a renewed people into his kingdom. Restoring them to God and one another. So here is the lamb. And John suddenly gets it. Here is the one who is worthy to open the scroll. Here is the one alone who is worthy to break those seals and kind of bring God's plan to its climactic end. And you say, well, what is the climactic end? What is the grand finale? Where is the plan of God going? <laughs> well, we catch wind of what, is, 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 what that entails in the song that these four creatures and these elders around the throne sing. And we're told that they erupt in this moment as the lamb comes forward. They erupt in this new song. And here is what they say. Worthy are you, verses 9 and 10. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So what's the climax of God's plan? It is amazing. The climax of God's plan is to bring you and I and all manner of races, tribes, tongues, people, nation, all manner of colors and cultures together to God and to make us a, a united people there with one another, set back on his mission, renewed fully in his image. The climax of human history is the undoing of racism. You could put it. It's the final ridding out of that root of pride and I will be God and no one else will be God that causes us to oppose all manner of people different than us, whether gender, socioeconomic, race, it doesn't matter. I will be God and I will crush you if you get in my way. That's the human dilemma. We can agree on one thing, get God out of the picture, and then it's me against you. He restores us in Jesus, gives us new hearts, brings us back together and brings us back to God. That's the amazing narrative of the Bible. That's the worldview. That's the story of Scripture uh, as pertains to race and racism and other things. This really is the climax of world history at the end of the age, but... Here's the thing we can't miss. It's also begun already now in Christ by his spirit. And that's why that second piece about not just learning the story. Oh, that's going to come great. But we need to now live in step with it. We need to live in step with this story. Because here's what we understand. The gospel, the meta narrative of scripture, when we kind of catch God's heart for these things. It, it's as if it lays out this path for us. And we can kind of walk out onto it. We can kind of see a little bit more clearly how we ought to feel about those that are different than us, how we ought to act and respond, how, how we ought to treat one another. If this is the world in which we live, if this is the story in which we are living, then how ought we to treat one another? It becomes more and more plain. There is absolutely no room for partiality, prejudice, ethnocentrism, racism in the hearts of men, especially God's people. When Peter, this is really where I get the idea of of living in step with this story and the gospel. When Peter the apostle, even after he kind of got the gospel himself, he was saved by it. He was even kind of called as a minister of it. When when Peter, though he knew the gospel was beginning to pull back to his ethnocentric sort of ways, and he was pulling away from Gentiles and things, we're told that Paul, another apostle, opposes Peter to his face. He says, what are you doing? And here's here's what uh, how Paul recounts the situation. He says, "Listen, I opposed Peter to his face because his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel." Galatians two fourteen. You're walking. Contrary to the path, the clear path that the gospel puts forward, you're not in step with the gospel anymore. When you let prejudice and, 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 and racism and partiality and ethnocentricity kind of take root in your heart and fruit out in your actions, you are not walking in step with the gospel anymore. Because listen, All human beings have been created in his image. And all human beings have fallen, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not some that are a little better than others. Some that are a little worse. All are in the same place. And yet we also know that Jesus came. God so loved the world that he sent his only son to be slain for us. And we're saved, not on our own merit, not by our own strength, certainly not by the color of our skin. We're saved by grace through faith freely on the basis of Christ's life, death and resurrection. And if that's true, Peter, if that's true, then my goodness, there is no room for this nonsense, not sharing a table with people of different races or whatever. All the doors are wide open. There's room at the table for anyone. It's amazing. But you see the utter incompatibility between the gospel and racism. And so what we'll do next, uh, next time, I think after Father's Day, uh, we'll wrap around We'll tease out more of these implications. What does it mean to kind of live in step with the gospel? What does it mean to, to um, walk in line, walk, live within this, this story? But I would say this uh, just in closing. It, wherever you are today, I mean, however um, you've been treated in the past, maybe even by church people, Whether you're black or you're white or you're yellow or you're brown or you're red or some beautiful mix of everything in between, what I hope is is abundantly clear from the time we just spent kind of laying out the theology of, of this and looking at the scriptural story, what I hope is abundantly clear is that God loves you, that God values you, that God gave his Son to make a way for you to come back home to him. So I just encourage you, if, if maybe you're listening, you're tuning in and you don't actually know Jesus and you're just kinda you know, looking for different perspectives on the stuff that's going on in the world around you and the culture around you right now, just encourage you, lay down your arms, stop opposing the one who wants to make you whole again, the one who wants to satisfy you, the one who wants to help and heal your hurting heart. Repent of your sin, repent of the desire to kind of be your own God and do your own thing and trust the one Trust the one who gave himself for you. He's not a tyrant. He's not in it for your ill. He loves you. and He wants to put you back together like he's slowly putting us back together. He wants to bring this incredible unity even in the midst of diversity. He wants to make us fully human. Again, let's pray. Jesus, I I just ask that you would... um, Minister right now. I realized there was so much more that I wish I could say or do and ways I could apply the things that we were discussing in your, in your word. But I trust Holy Spirit that you will bring in those things, apply, minister those things to people right where they need them. I pray that even before we wrap around with another sermon about all the implications and of the gospel with regard to race and treating people that are different than us and things, uh, I pray that you'd already begin doing that work uh, in the hearts of your people. Now that even as they go out in this day, they would start to notice, man, this is how, this is what it would mean right now to walk in step with the gospel. This is how I would talk to you. This is how I would treat you. This is how I would think God do that in the hearts of your people so that we can look more like you. And we cannot add to the noise that's going on around our culture and all the disorienting friction and fractions and all that, that we'd be that agent of peace and that voice of words, season of salt. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, and with that, I would invite you to join me uh, and others in the after party. Uh, Again, it is via Zoom, so you'll find that link in the chat bar. And we'll come in, chat a little bit maybe about uh, this uh, sermon, some questions, thoughts you have, uh, and also spend time in prayer and uh, sing some songs or two. All right, guys, I love you and hope to see you. Bless you.